0: Well, we're talking today about God and broken marriages. Uh, and I thought I might start off in the way probably that you'd expect, uh, with a little bit of uh, an explanation of the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, what you have here is um, the number of divorces in Australia. This is 17,500, 35, 50,000, 70,000. And across the bottom are a set of years. Uh, From 1901 through to about 1974, they were pretty low. And then 1975 happened and it went up to here. Does anyone know what happened in 1975? No fault divorce essentially uh, came in in Australia. And so there was a lot of, I think, pent up demand for ceasing marriages. And so that happened uh, in that year there. And then fell back down. Uh, rose uh, in the uh, early 90s, and it's interesting to note uh, that uh, the absolute number has been relatively steady for a little while. If you take it as a percentage of the Australian population, it's actually going down. Um, it's about two uh, per thousand people in Australia at the moment. Uh, the next uh, next stat just tells you uh, probably something that you already know. Um, That's the number of children who've been under 18 years of age who are in marriages that have ended in divorce. And this one here is the proportion of divorces involving children. This is the 50% line here. This is really interesting. It's actually been going down, which I think is uh, interesting. The reason for that is um, probably because divorce has been moving later in life. Uh, The highest instance of divorce is in 40 to 44 years of age and probably at that point your kids aren't over the age of 18. So I think that's why that percentage of divorces with kids is going down. Suffice to say, statistics aren't anything really when it comes to divorce, are they? We know that divorce is more than statistics. far more than that. We know this morning that people here will be living, some of you, in singleness. Some of you will be living in bereavement. Some of you will be kids of parents who divorced. Some of you will be parents who have divorced. Some of you will be friends of those who are struggling with their marriages even now. Some of you will be mums and dads of kids who've been divorced. Some of you just live next door to people and literally over the fence or through the walls of your house participated, watched something like that unfold. Divorce is far more than statistics and I reckon there's no one here that won't have been touched uh, in a personal way um, by divorce. So as we come to this topic this morning, it's not abstract, is it? It comes home very closely to us. It touches things that are very raw and emotional uh, and rightly because the things at stake are so valuable. So what we want to do is listen carefully to what Jesus has to say and we want to try and understand Uh, what his intention is both for marriage um, and in the midst of divorce. Well, we're going to start our examination this morning with my little overview of the Bible. If you've not seen this before, uh, basically this is my uh, picture guide to the Old and New Testament and uh, we're going to start off with the reading that was brought to us from Genesis, uh, which is right at the start here. The reason we want to start here becomes a little bit more obvious if we zoom in. The start of the story of the Bible is that God created the world and made human beings in right relationship with each other and with him. It was a world that knew nothing of sin. And the reason we want to start there is found in Genesis chapter 2. So if you can open that up with me. Uh, we'll, we'll have that open in front of us. and. Uh, that way we can follow along and see exactly where I'm getting all this stuff. I think it was on page 3, was that right? Hard to find. Genesis chapter 2. So what I want us to have a look at is just where uh, where marriage basically uh, comes from and why that's an incredibly important foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so here's my magnificent picture. Uh, in Genesis uh, we see that God creates... Uh, a man and he creates one man who's all alone. And uh, he's alone and God gives him the opportunity to name all the creatures and to see if a suitable companion can be found for him. And at the end of what was obviously a highly creative time for Adam, just coming up with names for everything. I don't know how you do that, but he did it apparently. He came up with names for everything and at the end of it, it, it appeared that no suitable helper could be found for him. And so in verse 18, we see, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Wonderful. Uh, There's something even uh, a dog, who is man's best friend, cannot provide. Uh, And so God uh, took one of uh, Adam's uh, ribs and made this person... I'd made a second person, which is actually a pretty wonderful miracle. And so we see in verses 21 to 23. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So there was one person. Now there's two people. I want to watch, I want you to watch what God does next. The next thing that God does is He makes something special about those two and actually makes those two one. He makes the two one. Verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife are both naked and they felt no shame. There's something wonderful that God creates. There was aloneness and then there was two-ness, and then there was togetherness that was one. Can you see that? It's all very clunky language, isn't it? But you getting it with me? God actually takes these separate individuals and puts them together to become one. That's actually how we start. And the reason that that's so important is that under God, he secures at least three things for Adam and Eve in doing this. He gives them the task of procreation. They're to have kids to fill the earth and to subdue it. He tells them that they have a lifelong faithful companionship. One of the wonderful things about joining them together is Adam's not alone and the person he's not alone with won't leave him. There's a wonderful, lifelong, faithful companionship that is intended. The third thing that comes from that commitment, wonderfully, is a shameless sexual intimacy. Amazing to say that in church, isn't it? But that's what God gave them. A safe place to express their sexuality. And it's safe because of the companionship and the commitment that precedes it. So under God, marriage provides for Adam and Eve this beautiful unity and this beautiful purpose. I I want you to see God's purpose Not your happiness is first on this list. Okay? This is really important. God's purposes stand first before any discussion about happiness. I think happiness will follow. I'm sure it did. But he doesn't say he put them together so that they would be happy. He put them together for companionship and purpose. Companionship and purpose. Not strictly and firstly for happiness. So what happens when sin enters the room? What happens after that beautiful situation starts to be influenced by sin? Well, I think what we see is each of these areas, each of these areas, once they step out from being under God and say, we're running this show ourselves, each of these areas is impacted. Instead of the sacrificial thing, which is looking after kids, and who doesn't know it's about sacrifice... There's selfishness. Instead of commitment, there's divorce. Instead of shamelessness, there's now shame and a sense that they're exposed. Sin comes in and changes every aspect of this beautiful and perfect relationship that had existed up till now. Which isn't to say, if you're reading along, that Adam and Eve got divorced, but the possibility of breaking that commitment enters in when sin takes hold and we step out from underneath God. God's good purpose suffers from our selfishness. God gave us a good purpose and when we steal control back for ourselves, all of a sudden it starts to mess up uh, the world that is around us. So you could say, all right, well, marriage is pretty much stuffed up. Uh, We should walk away from that. But amazingly enough, in the Bible, God uses marriage to talk to Israel. He uses the idea of marriage to talk to Israel. And so we see God and his people displayed as a bride and groom. And if I can find it here, I'm going to read you a little bit from Hosea. Have a listen to this. In that day, declares the Lord, he's speaking to Israel. He says, "'You will call me my husband.'" And you will no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them. I will abolish from the land so that they may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and in compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness and acknowledge the Lord. What basically God's saying is, the way you'll understand my relationship with you, Israel is like a marriage. God and Israel will be married. That's how he'll care for them. It's the covenant commitment he makes to them. And God sticks with that marriage idea even when Israel turns out like, well, she goes astray. Hence her attire, as you can see up here. Uh, Here's what God says to Israel in Jeremiah As he speaks to her about the fact that she's gone astray. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I'll frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favours to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband and I will choose you. It's awesome. Israel is unfaithful to its covenant marriage with God. And yet the thing that defines God is his faithfulness to his unfaithful people. Because when we're talking marriage, we're talking about a covenant, a commitment, not just a feeling. This idea actually extends into the New Testament. And I suspect that you already know this. Uh, In the New Testament, we see Jesus and the church set up in this same wonderful marriage relationship. And so uh, we have Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 saying things like this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. You see, the way we're to understand marriage in the New Testament is by looking to the way God is having the church as a bride for Jesus. Faithfulness, commitment, and purity is the, dro- the dominant idea that's in the New Testament. And so marriage, marriage is the way God speaks of his relationship with his people. So what do we learn from this? Well, there's three things I think we learn from this. We learn, first of all, that God models faithful monogamy. Uh, Not like in a nice suit and bow tie. What it means is he shows us what faithfulness to one bride looks like. God models it for us. Secondly, we see that God is grieved by adultery and unfaithfulness. Breaks his heart, basically. Breaks his heart. Thirdly, God isn't taken by surprise in this. God knows this world and knows that its relationships are marred by sin. And he doesn't go, all right, you've sinned, that's it, we're going to pack up the whole box of dice and go home. He lives with the world as it actually is and stays committed to his unfaithful Israel. Well, let's see these principles in practice. Let's think about a world shaped like that with those things first. What, what does it look like in practice? Well, if we go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, you might want to go there. Uh, Deuteronomy is one of the first five books of the Bible. So if you're looking for Deuteronomy, it's early on. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to Deuteronomy 24. If you don't want to flip, it's going to be up on the screen here, but if you want to see that I've read, I've copied and pasted it right, you can have a look with me there. Uh, it's in Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to have a look with you at verses 1 to 2 here. The reason we're going to look here is people will call back to this passage when they talk to Jesus about divorce and remarriage later. So we want to spend some time here, even though it's in the Old Testament. So it says this in, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if, after she leaves the house, she becomes the wife of another man. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, let's just stop for a second. I would be very surprised if any of you aren't thinking, what is going on here? Yeah? He's displeased with her? And he writes a certificate of divorce? That sounds reasonable. I hear anyone saying from the floor, hey, what about the woman? Does she get any say in this? What if her husband's a slob and doesn't tidy up the sink or something? I think we bring we bring very modern questions to this part of the Bible. And for us, as we hear it, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe maybe it's not you. But gee, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? So what's going on and how on earth can this be in the Bible and be helping us in any way to understand what God intends for marriage? Well, I want you to think with me for a second and imagine a world that isn't the same as ours. In this world, uh, if you're a woman and you're not connected to a husband, you have no way to provide for yourself. You might say, oh, just go and get a job. Because we can, right? Coles didn't exist. Bunnings wasn't a part-time working opportunity. There wasn't, it, it wasn't a world like that. And a woman without attachment was incredibly vulnerable. Now, you could imagine the husband might say, look, I'm not very happy with you. I'm just going to push you off to the side. In fact, you can't stay in my house anymore. Just get out. At which point, we now have a woman without any support in the world and, crucially, no ability to find support because her status is still married to the previous husband. Are you with me? So no one else will care for her, basically. She's his problem. And so if she gets pushed out of the house and isn't declared to be divorced... Essentially, you're stranding her in no man's land. No man's land. There's something there, isn't there? Do you understand what I'm saying? You with me? So, in essence, amazingly, ridiculously for our brains, this divorce provision actually protects the woman. It means that she has the ability to be looked after again because she's been formally declared to be not the husband, not the wife, sorry, of her previous husband. And in fact, the, the, uh, the idea that in, in the Old Testament it was possible to remarry after you are divorced is right here, isn't it? She's divorced, and then we've got an issue with the second husband. But there isn't, a, there isn't an issue here, apparently, about having a second husband in this instance. Can you see that? It would appear to me the issue is that the second husband's a jerk, if I can say that. I, I don't think that's a technical term, but... So... She's divorced and remarried. It it protects women. Here's the second really weird thing that we won't think that it does. It stops stealing. You're like, come on, what's going on here? All right. If I put the woman out of my house and write her a certificate of divorce, maybe I get away without losing uh, the dowry, what, uh, what was paid for her, because she did something improper so as the man, I get to keep all her goods. That's the first start. Secondly, she goes and marries another bloke, right? And then he puts her away or he dies. And what the Bible says is that lady can't marry her former husband. Here's why. Because if the lady is left standing with, say, a dead husband, she owns all the property, right? And if they remarry, Effectively, this guy has been able to steal all the property back into his household. Can you see this? It's really strange, but there it is. So it actually stops some conniving on the part of terrible husbands. Interesting. Third thing, uh, it stabilises society. And again, you're going, oh, it's a reach, isn't it? How does this stabilise society? It sounds like a terrible society. Well, here's the thing. If I can't divorce... And get remarried again afterwards. This will blow your minds because you'll never have thought of it. But we can't do any wife swapping. I can't give you my wife. You can have her for a bit and then I can have her back and take your wife and give it. That's ruled out. And so incredibly this divorce provision and this specific banning of remarriage actually should stabilise society. Now, I bet you didn't expect to find those three things in there, did you? But there we are. Those things are behind what's happening here. Now, all right, fair enough. In Jesus' time, what was said here in Deuteronomy 24, something else was happening. Those three things weren't what's going on. In fact, let's jump to Matthew, and we're going to go to... Here, people interacting with Jesus on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Okay, so we're going to go to Matthew and we're going to go to chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And if someone finds it, can you tell me what page that is? Sorry? 986, thank you. 986. All right, so... Uh, there were some specific reasons that that law had been put in place in Deuteronomy 24. But here's what had happened in the subsequent times. Have a look with me at verse 3. It says this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They came to Jesus and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, the reason that that had come up was it had appeared to some of the scholars that as they read Deuteronomy 24, it sounded like you could pretty much divorce for any reason you wanted. And so some of the people had decided, yep, it's right there in scripture, we can divorce for whatever reason and go for gold. Another group had been far more hardline and they'd said, no, that's ridiculous, it can't be for that. It has to be for specific immorality. And so then the uh, Pharisees are setting up Jesus for a little bit of a dilemma. Jesus, which side are you on? Is it actually lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Can you see how low a bar that is? Any and every reason. And in fact, uh, I was reading during the week, uh, one of the reasons that they got down to was um, not only if she displeases you, but if she, burns, if she burns the meal, that might be enough. Or, shockingly, one of them said, oh, if you find a better-looking potential partner, go for gold. Now, that's appalling. I hope we all see that that's appalling. But the bar had just fallen through the floor. And so the Pharisees are asking Jesus, is it right to divorce for any and every reason? Well, have a look. I essentially think they're asking this question... Isn't no-fault divorce okay? I think that's what they're asking. Jesus says this in verses 4 to 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, have you heard those words before somewhere? Well, you've heard them in the Bible reading. Where else have you heard them? Okay, in the marriage ceremony, haven't you? Except I think we use the word asunder. Is that right? Okay, so essentially, Jesus' response is a strong one, isn't it? Instead of saying, no, the bar's down here somewhere, he says, actually, you've underestimated what you're in. You've underestimated this marriage thing. And you've certainly underestimated who it is who joins them together. Are you with me? So Jesus says, actually, we're going to lift that bar up. Marriage isn't something that gets dissolved by a bad pizza. It's not that. It's an extraordinary union made by God. You need to lift up your understanding of what you're in and who it is who joins you. Well, that just prompts uh, another question because the Pharisees are always on a roll and they pretty much, I think, planned this for Jesus already. They they probably thought he was going to go this way. So have a listen. I think it'll be your question if you've been concentrating and listening to Deuteronomy 24. Well... Verse 7 says, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Yeah? If it's this huge commitment, if it's this God-ordained joining together, then... um, I was going to say, what the heck, but it's not right. Uh, Then why, pray tell, is Deuteronomy 24 in the Bible? What's it doing there? Why Moses' words is their second question. Jesus has an answer for them. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you, permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This is a huge deal, isn't it? Basically, Jesus is laying down an incredible standard. He's saying there's one exception. And without that, you're committing adultery. Jesus says you've minimised the sin. If, If it's for sexual immorality, then Moses has something to say. But it can't possibly be for these trivial things that you've identified. You've minimised it, and in fact, I want to tell you how serious it is. It's not just a bad idea, it's actually that you commit adultery. It's a very high standard. Well, I think the natural question then becomes, I okay, go, why is there any exemption at all? Why the special exemption for sexual immorality? Why is that the one thing that Jesus says is okay? Well, I want to take, take us back to Genesis where we're married. A marriage which is a one flesh union. That's what marriage starts off like, a one flesh union. And what he's saying is if you come up with another reason for separation from your wife and you give her a certificate of divorce and you remarry, then in essence, you're still united. That's huge. And the reason he says that is because the covenant still stands. In fact, what he suggests is, in the case of immorality, when you give a divorce what's happened is that new sexual union has actually severed the faithfulness contract that you had with the other. And so if you are divorced for adultery, that contract has been destroyed in the act. And so the union has been unmade. That's a pretty huge deal, isn't it? Well, let's revisit some really hard stuff. This is not the only time that this is mentioned in the Bible. And in fact, if you heard what I just said, that there is actually an exemption, some of you might say, yeah, but what about this? So in Luke sixteen eighteen, we read this, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, at which point, surely it sounds like there's no exemption. Does that sound right? Now, this is heavy stuff, isn't it? I actually think it's possible to hold these two things together, and I'll show you why. I think Jesus is absolutely convicted that there is one exception, but what he is explicitly ruling out here is this. The action he's taking issue with that is adultery is this. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman. Now, you're looking at me going, how's that an explanation? It looks like the same words, just run together. i what—I tell you what I think is going on. If you are divorcing with the intent to remarry, you're committing adultery. Are you with me? If you're divorcing because your marriage has been torn apart and broken bisexual infidelity, that's one thing. But if you're divorcing to continue this infidelity or with an eye to the infidelity, then you're in big trouble, is what Jesus is saying. In fact, I think he's saying this. If you divorce with an eye to remarriage, you're in sin. It's it's nuanced, but here's the thing. You're married. There's a a affair on the side and you initiate the divorce to remarry over here. Jesus is saying, I think very strongly, if you divorce and remarry, as in one movement, no repentance, with the intention to just jettison a partner, you're committing adultery. The I'm moving on smoothly to the next thing is to utterly disregard the preciousness of the covenant and the commitment and the union that's been made. So at that point, the disciples ask, I think, a totally reasonable question. And this is what they say. Uh, they say in, uh, in Matthew 19, uh, where is it? It's back here. They ask Jesus a question. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. In other words, Jesus, if you, if you raise the bar like this, if you say that there's no exceptions except for that, then, hey, Jesus, isn't it better not to marry? And Jesus' response is this. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept it should. You're going, what's a eunuch? I don't meet them around the place. Someone who had, uh, in the case of a male, um, had their genitalia removed that they might be of service in the court and not molest anyone, basically. People set aside specifically for the task who have jettisoned their own individual needs. Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word. Some people choose to accept it in this way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And if that sounds heavy... And if that makes you think, who would go into marriage if that's the bar, then I think Jesus is saying, now you're starting to think right. It is heavy, it is serious, it has huge implications. If it's freaking you out, we're now starting to talk about it the right way. So what about Christians? That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about. If you can flick there, we're going to do some application stuff through here. One Corinthians chapter seven. One Corinthians is towards the back of your Bibles. One Corinthians chapter seven, and we're going to have a look here. Uh, I'm going to pick it up from verse three. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to the wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The husband does not have authority over her. Uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Uh, I said this to my life group the other day. Uh, This is so extraordinary that we'll just completely miss it. The man in this society didn't have to yield anything to anyone, he was the boss. And yet Paul here is saying, for Christians, what you are doing is mutually offering yourself in marriage to one another. There is a service component to the way that you're designed to live together. And it involves, it involves serving one another sexually. Again, wow, we're saying this stuff in church. It's incredible, isn't it? Here's the thing. Paul is saying, you guys, if you're in a marriage, need to commit. To living your life together wholly as a married couple, and that will include sexual union. So, Paul's saying here first thing before we get to divorce and remarriage is, church, if you're married, invest in your marriage. In fact, it's much better than that. I think he says, fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage, not in your marriage, for your marriage be serving one another sacrificially. And I, I said this in my life group, I'm going to say it here as well. Um, this explicitly rules out withholding sex as a manipulation. Can I just say that? You are, you are to serve one another to make your relationship strong. Oh, by the same way, it means you can't demand, boys. It needs to be said, you can't demand... It's a place of mutual offering for love and support. Now, that is a, world, a world-changing word that needs to be heard, isn't it? Wives, serve your husbands. Husbands, serve your wives. All right. He goes on. Now to the unmarried and the widows. I'm sure that we have people in both those categories today. I say this. It is good for them to say unmarried as I do. Fair enough. Good work, Paul. Paul. He says, it's good to do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I want to suggest this. I think you're going to think I'm crazy. I wrestled with this before I got married. I know Carolyn did as well. Paul is saying the state of the world is such that you may choose, as a single person, as a widowed person, you may choose to stay celibate, single, for the sake of the kingdom. And he's saying we should weigh that carefully before we take any other steps. So you've heard me say that. To the uh, married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In fact, he's saying, here's what Jesus has to say on this topic. A wife must not separate from a husband. But if she does, she's to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to a husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Christian people are called to mirror their Father God in his faithfulness and commitment. They're called to remain in marriage. Or if they separate, remaining unmarried, why? could just be about suffering. You're just supposed to suffer more. But it's not the point. The point is that there's the opportunity to be reconciled. It's really interesting just to note, Paul starts with the wife. You guys won't care about that. But wives couldn't divorce husbands in Jewish society. Just shows this radical commonality that men and women have in the church. And it says at the end, a husband must not divorce his wife. What's the point here? Above all else, for Christian people, you must seek restoration and reconciliation. It must be the first thing on your agenda. It is not easy to do. It is heartbreakingly difficult. The only reason any of us will find commitment to do it is because of our marriage vows. If we weren't married, we'd run away. But the wonderful, deep promise that you made when you had no idea what you were doing... Binds you to a person who changes, who grieves you, who hurts you, and binds you mutually to commit to working out how to go on living together. I think this hard work is only possible in a marriage commitment. And as we dig in the muck and dirt and difficulty of actual marriages, we should rejoice that we do because of our commitment. For the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. This is really great. Paul says, hey, church, if you're getting saved in a relationship, guess what? Don't jettison it. It's precious. Stay there. Don't leave. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances and God has called us to live in peace. I would say this is the second exception. If the unbeliever in your relationship walks out on you, will not be reconciled to you, despite your passion and desire to, then it's saying here you're unbound. The only way I think we can reasonably understand that is to say that you are free to be remarried again. But it will not be, it will not be your first intention. It will not be your energy or effort. But I believe what you see here is unbound, meaning that you are free at this point to remarry. If you're abandoned and blocked from reconciliation. So practically speaking... What does God think about broken marriages? Well, let me sum it up this way. God, the God that you will talk to for help in your marriage, the God who will stand with you in singleness, the God who knows the grief of adultery, that God is our God, and he models relentless grace and forgiveness in brokenness and sin. What does a real marriage look like? It looks like following our Heavenly Father who loved at extraordinary cost an unfaithful and disobedient wife. See, here's the thing. Moses permitted you to write a certificate of divorce. He didn't demand you to. God models for us extraordinary grace and forgiveness in the face of sin. Secondly, He makes possible remarriage for the victim of adultery and the irreconcilable and repentant believer. God actually is a God of second chances. And praise God, there are opportunities for a fresh start with him. And my hope is that at some place, we'll have a chance to have some of those weddings where we put together people who God has offered a second chance to. I had an amazing experience where uh, I chatted with a couple who'd been living together for, I don't know, 20 years. She'd been divorced at the age of 18, I think. Terrible situation. Um, and, uh, and he was a uh, non-believer. She'd had some background in the church. Uh, I sat with these guys because they wanted to get married 20-something years into their... De facto relationship. And as I sat with them and shared the gospel, the bloke figured out for the first time that he could find repentance and forgiveness in Jesus. The girl who'd thought that God had no time for her since the disaster of her marriage, where her husband had left her, found forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus. They gave their lives to him. This is the most wonderful story. I sat in this room when I first started this marriage thing. I thought, oh, I'm going to marry a, in a situation where I feel so compelled by my conscience that I can't do it. And both of them, he, she recommitted her life. He gave his life to Jesus as a 50-year-old bloke. It was extraordinary, crying on his couch in the living room. And I married them as people who would got right with God and wanted to find the forgiveness and hope that he offered. Church, we have to be able to offer that. We have to be able to offer that. We have to stand with people who know what the brokenness of divorce looks like and we have to love them and not judge them. We need to stand with those who are choosing to remain single and love them and include them and have them to lunch when you think, oh, it'd be much easier if everyone had a partner. We as a church need to know how to love divorced and single people. Thirdly, I think he seeks godly fear for those who have and will vow these great marriage promises. Be fearful before God of what you have said. If you're about to say them, think carefully before you do. If you have said them, go home and read them over again tonight. Read them together. And ask the Lord's mercy to help you. My mate um, Matthew Sacco is a uh, wedding photographer who takes beautiful photos. I just thought I'd put that up uh, there while I read you this passage. You know, marriage is this driving idea in the Bible. God's faithfulness, his wonderful love for his people. In Revelation 21, the story of the Bible finishes in this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the dwelling place of God is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen, broken and hurting world. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, you and I follow a crucified Lord. We must live in the pain of today for the days that are yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand, uh, yeah, humbled before your great love for us. For some of us, Father, there will be deep pain associated with this topic, and we ask your comfort. For those carrying grief and guilt, I pray, Father, that with repentance you may bring great relief and assurance of sins forgiven. I pray, Father, for those who mourn the loss of a partner. Father, that you may indeed comfort and sustain them. And I pray for all that are married now, Father, that you might give us the love and the passion, the energy, the grace and the forgiveness to fight for this wonderful thing that you've entrusted into our care. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.